In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Some time back, in order to support our book habit, Mrs. Kidd and I were having bookshelves built into um, several rooms in our house. At the end of a day of construction, Mrs. Kidd walked into one of the rooms, looked at the end piece of one of the sections and said, I don't think that end is straight. It looks bowed out. I squinted and concurred. The workman who built it said, looks straight to me. Mrs. Kidd took a piece of string, tied a small weight to one end, and fixed the other end to the top inside of the bookshelf. Sure enough, it was bowed, significantly so once you saw it next to the straight string. The workman had to agree, but said, it'll straighten up when we nail the shelves in. The general contractor had walked into the room about then and said, no, as Ross Perot, aside, may he rest in peace and may light perpetual shine upon this dear man. No, as Ross Perot used to like to say, measure twice, cut once. That end piece is too long, you need to fix it. And fix it, he did. The prophet Amos applies this construction metaphor to God's people. In the Old Testament, God had called the family of Abraham to grow into a house in which God himself would dwell and into which he would invite the nations. The house was to stand tall and straight with squared off corners embodying true worship of the one true and living God, demonstrating justice and fair treatment of all with special mercy for the poor and disadvantaged and modeling purity in sexuality. But here's the situation as to worship. I hate, I despise your festivals. They lay themselves down beside every altar. Amos 5, chapter 1, Amos chapter 5, verse 1, and chapter 2, verse 7. Here's the situation when it comes to justice. They trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and push the afflicted out of the way, Amos chapter 2, verse 7. And here's the situation when it comes to purity. Father and son go in to the same girl, Amos chapter 2, verse 7. The Lord is intent upon confronting his people with their distortion of worship, their twisting of justice, and their descent into sensuality. But the problem is, everything up there in the northern kingdom of Israel seems just fine. King Jeroboam has been presiding over a two decades long economic boom. Strong treaties have ensured the borders are secure. The important people are living their best lives. More, Jeroboam II has made, has attached to his court a toady prophet named Amaziah, who keeps telling the king and everybody else how great things are. Jeroboam II has made Israel great again. Enter Amos, a hick rural southerner, a small farmer from a little village called Tekoa, south of the Judean capital of Jerusalem. 
Amos claims that the Lord has sent him to the urbane north to confront its leaders about their shoddy construction work in God's house. See, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never pass them by again. The high places of Isaac will be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel should be laid waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Amaziah, Jeroboam's court chaplain, tells Amos, go back to your little hick town down south and stop prophesying in Bethel, home of the Northern Kingdom's national cathedral. Then the giveaway lines. In verse 13, it's the king's sanctuary, and it is a temple of the kingdom. In other words, it's a projection of the king's ego and the people's arrogant pride. Worship of Yahweh has given way to civil religion and the worship of me and everybody else who looks and talks and spends like me. Amos tells Amaziah, Jeroboam's toady, let me paraphrase verse 17, your promotion of immorality will lead to your own wife being sold into prostitution. Your prejudicing justice in the favor of entitled people like yourself will lead to your sons and daughters being slaughtered and your land being parceled out to your conquerors. And because your false worship has desecrated the land, you will be cast out into an unclean land away from God's presence. And so concludes Amos, the building is unfixably out of true, tilted with bowed walls, the whole edifice has to come down. Amos apparently does go back down south writes his prophecies down, and becomes the first of the great writing prophets, followed by Hosea, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. And within a few years, Assyria invades, wipes out the northern kingdom for good. Well, how do we draw lessons from this prophecy of disaster? How do we find good news here? Well, a couple of weeks ago, I encouraged you when facing a challenging Old Testament passage to ask three questions. Is there some way in which this passage anticipates Christ and faith in him? Is there some way that this passage points to hope for renewal, for resurrection, for new heavens and new earth? And three, is there some way in which this passage helps to shape me better to love God and my neighbor? Are the lessons here about faith, hope, and love? Bear with me for a few minutes. Let me suggest that our Good Samaritan parable offers some help. What if God's plumb line came in person? His standard of measure. What if he came in the flesh and came not just to show us how we are out of true, how our lives are bowed or tilted, but came to fix us. Consider the parable of the Good Samaritan from two different angles. First, the angle of faith and hope. You're lying on the side of the road. Your life is out of true. 
I don't know how, drained by false, drained of life by false gods, promise a lot, deliver nothing. The pursuit of wealth, fame, the American dream, maybe you've been cheated by people you thought you could trust. Perhaps you've been violated and cast aside by lovers who are nothing but abusers. People who could help just pass by on the other side and you're left there to die. Enter God's good Samaritan, himself acquainted with grief, acquainted with grief, familiar with rejection. He too could pass you by. He could go, tut, tut, isn't it horrible to be you? Uh, Excuse me, I've got to go catch up with my friends just up the road. Instead, he stoops all the way down to where you are. As my professor, Ed Clowney, once put it in in a hymn that he wrote, you came to us, dear Jesus, in our dying. As broken, bleeding, we could make no sign. Compassion, Lord, brought you to where we were lying to lift us up to pour on oil and wine. Here's the perspective of faith and hope. Jesus sees you on the side of the road. He sees you with walls bowed and tilting, about to fall over. He's come to hold you in his arms, to lift you up and restore you to life, to anoint you with baptismal oil and to fortify you with Eucharistic wine. And second, the angle of love. God's plumb line in the flesh comes not for demolition after all, but to unbend bowed walls, re-square untrue corners, to restore crumbling buildings to their original purpose. It's from this different perspective that Vincent van Gogh paints the Good Samaritan. And I'm so grateful. Every time I think about mentioning Vincent van Gogh, I show up at church and the Flower Guild has made sure that there are sunflowers here, van Gogh's favorite flower. Late in van Gogh's life, he paints three biblical scenes. In one, he paints a pieta, Mary grieving over her son who has just been taken down from the cross. Van Gogh paints Jesus' emaciated face as his own, ginger beard and sunken features. This painting is a visual prayer. Lord Jesus, take my death into your own. In a second, Van Gogh paints the raising of Lazarus. And in this painting, the face of Lazarus is Van Gogh's. Ginger beard, sunken features, just waking from the dead. Another visual prayer, Lord Jesus, make your rising my rising. And then in the third painting, the Good Samaritan, Van Gogh once again paints himself into the scene, not as one might expect, as the emaciated man on the side of the road. Instead, Van Gogh paints himself as a strong-bodied, ginger-bearded Good Samaritan lifting the dying victim onto his own donkey. 
another visual prayer, an aspirational prayer. Lord Jesus, give me the strength to love with your love. Throughout his life, Van Gogh tried with all his might to make a difference. And everywhere he turned, he felt like a failure. He tried to be a minister to tell people how to worship the God who loved them in Jesus. Failure. He tried to lift a single mother out of prostitution. Failure. He tried to build a colony of artists to revolutionize painting together. Failure. He tried to make a living by his own painting. Failure. He made 2,000 pieces of art and sold one during his lifetime. All he could do was paint. It was the only means he had to express his love for God and others. Paint. Every painting of visual prayer, Lord Jesus, give me the strength to love with your love. You're perhaps overwhelmed with the state of things. To whom do you write and what do you say about porous borders and caged children? Are you going to stop hurricanes and earthquakes and global warming? How do you raise a voice for sexual sobriety and compassion? How do you address the idolatries of our time of money and power and violence? Mrs. Kidd the other day pointed to Dorcas in the book of Acts. A little bit of narrative sandwiched in between the acts of the great apostles like Paul and Peter. She didn't know how to preach like Paul. She didn't know how to pray like Peter. So she left behind no speeches. Nothing that appeared to influence the world around her except the tunics and other clothing that she had made for the widows when she was with them. Maybe that's all the Lord had asked her to do. Maybe all you have to offer from your love is your paintings, your poems, your blogs, your cup of cold water, your befriending someone who's sexually broken, financially upside down, whose health is breaking. Maybe all you have to offer is your floral arrangements, your gracious manner on the golf course, your work with scouts, your quilting, your gardening, in the name of Jesus, in the name of love, in the name of God's unexpected plumb line, maybe, just maybe, when you help that person get back up and put them on your animal and go along with them, Maybe it's enough. To him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we can ask or even think to ask. To him be the glory in Christ Jesus and in the church now and forever. Amen.